Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Esther Amini. Esther Amini is a writer, painter, and psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice. Her debut memoir, Concealed, was named by Kirkus Reviews as one of the best books of 2020. In addition, both Katie Couric and Zibby Owens selected Concealed as one of their favorite books and showcased it last year at the Stryker Center in Manhattan. Esther Amini's short stories have appeared in Elle, Lilith, Tablet, The Jewish Week, Barnard Magazine, and numerous other publications. Her essays can also be found in Zibby Owens' anthology, Moms Don't Have Time To, as well as in Zibby's most recently published anthology, Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Esther was named one of Aspen Word's Best Emerging Memoirists and awarded its Emerging Writer Writer Fellowship in 2016 based on her memoir, Concealed. Seven of her pieces have been performed by Jewish Women's Theater in Los Angeles and in Manhattan, and she was chosen by Jewish Women's Theater as their artist in residence in 2019. High Flicks, the Jewish Netflix, is presently streaming an excerpt from Concealed called Am Rika. Esther lives in New York City with her husband. So welcome, Esther. And first, I want to say that I agree with all of the accolades for your book, Concealed. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an extremely compelling, captivating, eye-opening, beautifully written memoir. I can't say enough about it. And I'm so excited to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, First, uh, you want to begin by giving us a brief summary of Concealed for those who haven't read it yet. Of course. Firstly, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, My book is a memoir, and it is about being caught between two opposing cultures. I felt that I was born and raised at the intersection of medieval Mashhad, a city in Iran, and 20th century America. Uh, And before I even get into my story, I think it's very important for listeners to know the background story. Um, Jews lived in ancient Iran, which back then was called Persia, for 2,700 years, making them the oldest community in the Jewish diaspora. Um, I was born in New York City unto Jewish Iranian parents who came from the most fanatical Islamic city in all of Iran, that is Mashhad. Mm-hmm. Mashhad is a Shiite stronghold and pilgrimage site with a long history of maiming and massacring infidels. An infidel is anyone who is not Muslim. 
This city is also considered the holiest in all of Iran because their ninth century Imam Reza is buried there. And millions come to pay homage to Imam Reza from around the world. Now you have to you know, uh, incorporate all of this and imagine you have my ancestors living as Jews in this city. You have my parents who lived in the city through the mid 20th century. And the only way they could survive was to live as crypto Jews, underground hidden Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother would wear the chadr, which is the Farsi, the Persian word for burqa. She covered herself from head to toe in black and would look through eye slits whenever she stepped out of her home. Uh, my father prayed in public squares five times a day, posing as Muslim, reading from the Quran. However, in the secrecy of their home, they were devout Jews. So they lived this life of duplicity, duality, fear. Uh, and when they immigrated to the United States, which was right after World War II, uh, they left in 1946, many decades before the Khomeini Revolution. They left in 1946, arrived in New York 1947, and brought with them the values of Mashhad. So a couple of years later, I am born and the story begins. Um, so to understand my story, you do have to understand their story and uh, what they hold with them from this country, what they emotionally and in terms of principles, values, lifestyles, do's and don'ts, they brought with them and believed in 100%. That was what was one of the many things that was so fascinating about your book. Many, many of the books, many of the, the memoirs are about Eastern European Jews. And uh, we rarely uh, get a glimpse in, into this culture. Uh, and your memoir is how all of this uh, affected and impacted you. What what inspired you to want to share this deeply personal story? Well, that's, that's a good question. You know, I, I've been living with this thought, uh, what does memory want from me? I have so many memories of growing up uh, with my parents, my brothers, the community. Um, and what does memory want from me? Um, I didn't want my ancestors and their plight to vanish into thin air. I felt a very strong responsibility to give voice to those who weren't allowed to have a voice. Uh, to understand this, you have to know that the girls who grew up in Mashhad during my mother's generation, they were not allowed to step foot into a classroom. And so they were kept illiterate. My mother was illiterate. Uh, the boys were allowed to learn to read and write. So the girls never wrote their story. Uh, and the young men also didn't because they were afraid to. Uh, how could they write a personal transparent memoir when they're pretending to be other than who they are? Their lives were at stake. Um, and so back then, it wasn't possible. I come from a legacy of concealment. And so I decided, here I am, growing up in, the, in America, educated. It was up to me to break the silence, to defy Mashad, 
and to be the bridge between my parents and the next generation of American children. Uh, so that was one. The other was to thread the Machete story into the larger Jewish tapestry. There are many who don't know about the Jews of Mashhad. Those who do, uh, they say, ah, that's like the Muranos of Spain. And there is some correlation, uh, but it's not quite the same. And so I wanted to thread the Machete story into the larger Jewish story. Um, I also wanted to make, on a personal level, I wanted to make sense of the confusion that I experienced uh, growing up because I felt I was raised by dissonance. Um, and, I, and writing develops fluency with oneself and I needed that fluency. So let, let's talk a little bit about uh, what it was like for you uh, growing up uh, with your parents in the family you grew up in. You grew up in Queens, New York. Your father demanded silence. He was terrified of the outside world and would not have sent you to school if he didn't think it was the law of the land. For him, education, books, and words were dangerous. You actually concealed your excellent grades and you read under the covers. You forged your father's signature on excellent report cards from first grade through high school for fear he would know how well you were doing. Um, how did this hiding of yourself affect you? Well, I think it affected me in many ways. Uh, number one, I was a very shy child and uh, obedient, deferential, uh, and someone who remained quiet and watched and wanted to understand what was going on uh, because I was living, as I said, in a, I, I felt like there was dissonance all around me. It wasn't just the culture clash, mm -hmm. but also my parents were opposites. Uh, my mother ran on high octane, even <laughs> though she was illiterate and she was forced to marry my father when she was 14 and my father was 34. Wow. He was a strong character, a strong traditional man. She was a rebel and she was defiant and outspoken, irreverent, uncensored. Uh, she was an anachronism for her time. And then there was, was also very clever how she, even though she didn't read and write. She she learned how to work the system. I I I remember your description of how she she took you um, to a a fancy uh, fashion um, show 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 place and and how she uh, finessed that. Yes, yeah, that was the Oscar de Laurenta story. Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was streetwise. She was very sharp in her own way. Uh, and then there was my father, who was a man of silence, like dead silence. And he was a big, big advocate of silence in the home. Um, I believe he was traumatized by his own upbringing and his underground cryptic life in Mashhad. Uh, and so he felt his lifelong commitment was to evil protection. Like the world was evil. Anything coming from the outside world was going to contaminate us. 
And so he banned books when it came to me, not to my two older brothers, because he felt girls should not be literate. They shouldn't be well-informed. They shouldn't be too intelligent in order to marry them off. Um, and so he felt books were toxic, subversive, would overthrow his rule. Um, and there was it, it was, it was very confusing for me because we had this father and then we had this mother who was um, so defiant, so outrageous, crazy sense of humor, did whatever she wanted to do. Uh, and I really was in a state of like shock growing up, not knowing what to hear, what to believe in, who to be. Uh, and I have a lot of comical stories, as you know, there's a lot of humor in the book. Yes. Because when cultures clash, there's so much room for misunderstanding and misinterpretation um, and somehow using the interpretation of your culture, which may not be the interpretation of the American culture. And so there is a lot of comic relief in the book, uh, but there's also a lot of drama. And I think that that upbringing and my character, my own personality, uh, turned me into the psychotherapist I am today. Uh, I also paint and I write. I think it, it turned me into a listener and an observer and someone who is uh, very, very interested in uh, paradox. I, I think I'm an embracer of paradoxes and trying to make sense out of what seems senseless. You know, I I want to ask you as as someone uh, who's written both fiction uh, and nonfiction. You're so candid, uh, brutally honest, and as you said, there's there's humor in it, but there's also great pathos in it. Uh, why did you decide to make it a memoir and not fictionalize it? Wouldn't that have felt safer to make it into work of fiction? Well, you know, the, the truth is so much more <laughs> outrageous <laughs> than if I had turned it into a fiction story. I mean, I think it would have been weaker as a fiction. I think it really needed, it needed to be nonfiction uh, in order to convey the truth. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, you know, to break the silence, I think it's important um, to tell it as it was since no one has. No one has, you know, this is a story that has not been told firsthand, secondhand, the Jews of Mashhad and being a descendant, the daughter of crypto Jews and the ramification it had on me as first generation American. Um, this story hasn't been told. So why fictionalize it? Okay, well, absolutely. And you, you, tell it beautifully. Uh, I, I Let me correct me if I'm not pronouncing this right. Abru? Yes, the word, the Iranian word is Abru. Okay, it's a core value in the Iranian world, but it's foreign uh, to the American culture. Can you explain it to us and tell us how you relate to it today? Yeah, Abru is a very interesting concept. Um, it's a tenet of daily Persian life. It means honor, reputation, one's respected face. 
if your ancestors lived honest, ethical lives, lives of integrity, proper social conduct, then when you're born, you inherit their honor. And it becomes your social currency, your wealth, even a credit line, because you have good or brew, mm -hmm. unless it's lost through missteps. Mm -hmm. So in Iran, ill conduct didn't just damage one's social status. It had lasting multi-generational effects, tainting the reputation and prospects of future descendants. That's a very heavy load and very foreign, as you said earlier, to Americans, because we don't yeah. think this way. But if I misbehave according to the rule books of, of Mashad, if I misbehave, um, my children then have been tainted uh, and others will not want their children to marry my children. So that it goes on for generations. It's a very weighty responsibility. Um, and that feeling of abru is always, always said in the family. You know, uh, it's our abru, watch the way you dress. It's our abru, watch the way you speak. Uh, your hair doesn't look right. It's our abru. It's not just about you, Esther. It's affecting our entire family and our descendants. Wow, that's a very, very weighty responsibility, especially for a young person. And, and that was consistent throughout your growing up years. Well, wow. I, I, think, I think what made it uh, complicated is that I didn't grow up in a country that was living that way, right? So here mm -hmm. I am growing up in the United States. Uh, we've now entered the 1960s, the freewheeling right. uh, 1960s of New York City, you know, and no one uh, has any conception of Aubrey, uh, and, and yet this is the home I'm coming from. So if you were raised in Iran and the culture is repeating the same principles, then it's very different. But uh, it, it's really about like this clash of symbols. And um, it's not in sync with the society that I'm growing up in. Absolutely. Well, again, it was a fascinating book and everybody should read it because it's, it's an amazing story. Now, you mentioned your, your older brothers. Uh, did, tell us um, their, about their influence on you and did they inspire your love of books and learning? Because you came out obviously with a great love of learning and books, even though that was discouraged uh, by your father. You're very true. I, I think I was really blessed to be the third in line. I have two older brothers. One is 10 years older. The other is seven years older. I'm the youngest and the only daughter in the family. And I was bolstered by my brothers. There is no question about it. I write about that and all the wonderful things they did and the way they were with me. You know, as sons, they were expected to do well. And if having a good education meant that they would be able to later in life support a family, uh, be the, a good breadwinner, then they were all for a good education. You know, and the 
uh, expectations were very different for sons versus daughters. Their ex my father's expectation of me was that I should marry at a very young age, uh, as his mother did. His mother married at the age of nine to a, to a first cousin who was 20 years older than her, and he was 29. So my grandfather was 29, my grandmother nine when they married. My mother 14 when she was forced to marry my father, who was 34. The 20 year age difference was very, very common in Mashhad and the younger, the better. So this is what my father had, was, had been seeped in. This is what he knew worked, according to him, it worked. Um, and so he wanted me to marry young. He'd never thought at the age of nine, but I think he certainly <laughs> thought by 14, 15, no later than 16, I should be married and I should start having children. Um, and I should- And it had no children. influence on him that he was living in a culture where uh, that was not done. That didn't make well, any he, he was against the American culture. Mm -hmm. He tested this culture. Um, he felt that this country was ruled by heathens and that it was unethical, immoral. Uh, and he always found ways of, of fortifying his argument that this country was basically no good. There was no family life. I mean, he came from a country where family was central. Um, and here, you know, children were latchkey kids coming home with a key strung around their neck, letting themselves in. I mean, he, everything about this culture turned him off. Um, so no, he didn't want to be an American. He didn't want me to be an American, even if I was growing up here. Um, and my brothers were phenomenal because they were given the green light and they did very well in school. Uh, they worked hard, they loved to read, they shared their passions with me. Uh, the eldest Albert was, uh, he was dreaming of becoming an architect. He went off to Cornell, their architectural school. Uh, at the time it was the best in the country. Uh, my brother David went off to Columbia and was an English lit major, uh, and they shared their passions with me quietly, secretly, behind closed doors, um, but it was wonderful. It was wonderful because I did feel I was raised by my brothers in many ways. Wow. So you said that you, you felt that you wanted to tell this story honestly, as a nonfiction book. I'm curious, uh, what was your writing process like? How did, long did it take you to write the book? Did you need to do research? Did you interview family members or did you just draw on your own memory? I would say all of the above. It took me between five to six years to complete the book. Uh, I worked on it uh, avidly. Uh, because I am a therapist and I have a private practice and I have a family. I mean, I have other obligations. And so I would work late at night, every night. I would work over the weekend for five to six years. And there was a lot of uh, excavation. You know, when you write a memoir, you have to dig deep. You have to go back and relive your life. I wanted to access that child inside of me and the voice of little Esther 
and pre-adolescent Esther and teenage Esther and, and get her right all the way through, uh, through college, through adulthood. Um, and it's, it's difficult because there were, again, many hilarious moments, side-splitting moments that I loved writing about, but there were also many painful moments. And you do have to live your life twice if you're going to write a memoir. Right. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, that you're a uh, psychotherapist. Do, uh, do you believe that your background uh, in any way inspired you to choose this profession? And does it impact your practice? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, I, as I said earlier, I was a very quiet child and I was always very, I was wide-eyed and listening and watching closely and always fascinated by people, by the contradictions uh, and always wanting to understand why uh, and eventually realizing people are rather complex and there are so many sides to each person. Uh, I think partly it was my nature. I think partly it was my family life that made me, um, that drew me to the profession. Uh, and so I'm, I'm always in, impressed by the human spirit, by the ability to cope under duress, under tremendous hardships um, and, and to survive and how people do survive in different ways. Um, so certainly my background plays a part in it uh, and my own interest in the psyche um, has a lot to do with it. So as, as we discussed, your story is quite unusual. It's an unknown story, uh, very specific to your life. But the book, and rightfully so, has received worldwide praise and acclaim. It resonates with so many different people. How do you explain its universal appeal? Well, I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot because when I wrote the book, I thought it was so idiosyncratic, so specific mm. to me, mm. uh, and rather odd. The story is strange. Uh, and I, I thought people would be intrigued, but I didn't think people would identify, and I was proven wrong. Uh, people have contacted me through email um, from around the world, and not, they're not necessarily females. They're, not, they're certainly not Jewish. They're not Persian. And, and they say, I, I identify, I identify. And I had to really stop and think, uh, what are they identifying with? Um, and I think the basic skeletal structure, separate from it's an immigrant story uh, and how do you navigate two worlds, the basic skeletal structure is what happens when one doesn't fit into the paradigm of one's family. Mm. I think mm -hmm. that's something perhaps almost everyone yeah. uh, struggles with, where they don't really fit into the paradigm of their family. Mm. And when you you know, you begin to ask yourself, who am I? Um, and how do I incorporate my disparate parts? And you struggle with this. And when you struggle with this, there's an invitation for more. It moves you forward. Uh, there's the opportunity for growth. Um, 
And I feel that my book is about growth and becoming more grateful than grievous uh, by the end, uh, really having a deep appreciation for the generations that came before me and what they had to tackle uh, and how they survived um, and realizing their limitations as well as my own limitations. Um, and I think that is thematically something many, many people can identify with. And be inspired by. Uh, so our time is uh, drawing to a close. I just want, I want to ask you uh, what's next for you. Uh, do you have anything planned in regard to the book, other projects? Uh, well, right now I'm working on a number of short stories. They're also memoir-like, they're autobiographical with a great deal of humor uh, and drama. Uh, intertwined. And I'm hoping that once I complete these stories, I, I'll be able to put them together as a collection, uh, as an anthology. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share? I think you covered this very well, uh, Meryl. So I want to thank you for this interview. I think it went very well. You covered the major issues. Um, if anyone needs to reach me, I am, um, I have an author's website and they can reach me at Esther Amini, one word, estheramini.com. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Esther Amini. It's been a delightful time to speak with you. I enjoyed it very much. And again, your book is awesome. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book, I'm your host, Meryl Ain. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.